1: This is Debbie Sorensen. Today on New Books in Psychology, I'm doing something a little different. For a change, I'm interviewing a historian today. Her name is Dr. Hannah Decker, and she's a historian who specializes in the history of psychiatry. And I'm interviewing Dr. Decker about her book, which is called The Making of DSM-3, A Diagnostic Manual's Conquest of American Psychiatry. And in this book, she writes about the history of the revolutionary third edition of the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And in the book, she also explores the history of American psychiatry at that time and how the the new version of the DSM shifted things. And myself, as a clinical psychologist, I have mixed feelings about the DSM, as do many mental health professionals, but it certainly has a huge impact in my field and in my daily work. And to me, reading this book and listening to Dr. Decker talk about her work was really helpful in terms of putting some of the controversy around the DSM that continues uh, with the new version into a bigger historical context. So let's take a listen. Hello, Dr. Decker. Uh hello Dr. Sorensen. Thank you so much for being on New Books in Psychology today. Um so today we're going to be talking with you about your new book which is called The Making of DSM-3: A Diagnostic Manual's Conquest of American Psychiatry. And I was just wondering if we could start the interview um with you telling us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. I'd
0: be glad to do that. Um, I was born and uh educated in New York City. Um I went to Barnard College as an undergraduate and Columbia University for my masters and, and doctorate. Um I at this point in my life I think I call myself a, a cultural historian of, of psychiatry and, and psychoanalysis. Um I I've been fortunate to be able to have dual training um in in history and in psychiatry and psychoanalysis. Um with with the doctorate in history, but also a, a fellowship and, and postgraduate fellowship uh at the Cornell University Medical College in the history of psychiatry and the behavioral sciences. Um, it, this is a program that's still going there uh and has been for, for many, many years. Um, so uh as a result, I not only teach in the Department of History at the University of Houston but I'm, uh, on the faculty of the College of Medicine, an adjunct professor of medical history in the Menninger Department of Psychiatry. And there I teach residents, psychiatric residents, history of psychiatry. And, uh, I'm also an adjunct, uh, faculty member of the Center for Psychoanalytic Studies, uh, Houston, uh, where, uh, I, I join as a, as a co-teacher in And teaching uh fellowship training uh so so um i i really enjoy you know these various aspects uh of of my um, of my, both my training and my ability to use it
1: how did you um what what sparked the interest in the history of psychiatry as a specialty
0: well um it started with an interest in Germany. Uh, my, my family, uh, was quite estimated, uh, during the Holocaust and, and friends of my family as well. um my, my parents are not, were never in the Holocaust. I mean, they, they, uh, came to this country, uh, from Europe, uh, well before then, but still, um I, I was, I remember, uh, my, my, uh, mother crying. All the letters that she was receiving from, from the ghetto. Uh, so this was pretty powerful for me. Uh, so I, um, when I started on graduate work, I thought I would do German history, and uh, my uh, professor uh, mentor in that was uh, Professor Fritz Stern. Uh, and as he, he's uh, basically an intellectual historian, a historian of ideas. Uh and as we were batting about a um, dissertation topic, um, we kind of went back and forth. I'd say something, and he said, no, well, I don't think so, and then he'd say something, and I'd say, oh, well, I don't think so. Uh, but then, uh, after a while, he said, you know, uh I, I know you have a certain amount of knowledge of psychiatry and psychoanalysis, so perhaps you'd like to go write about The reception of psychoanalysis in Germany. And I thought, hey, you know, that really sounds great. So I'm in New York City and lots of analysts and I go talk to some of them and broach the subject. And they say, oh, that's impossible. You'll never do that. That's impossible. No, no way. Uh, but you know, you're young and (laughs) adventuresome and who cares what older people say. Uh, so I, I went into the topic. I plunged in. And of course they turned out to be absolutely right. I mean, my, my original aim was to go from the very beginning when I was in Germany till uh, 1933 when the Nazis uh, took over in Germany. And that was impossible. I mean, <laughs> there was so much to cover. So I ended up narrowing it quite a bit and wrote only about the reception of psychoanalysis in Germany, uh, before the First World War. Um that, that's how I got into the history of psychiatry. And then when I had, as I'm a, I'm a student at Columbia, I'm in the same city with the Cornell Medical School. And so I was able to take advantage, uh, of this program in the history of psychiatry at Cornell. And I, I got a, a fellowship for the, from the Josiah Macy Foundation in the history of, of uh, medicine and the biological sciences. Um, which supported me in in the Cornell program. Uh So that, that that's me.
1: And what about um, how did you end up deciding to write this particular book on the history of DSM three? Yeah,
0: well, it's 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 a, a revolutionary time in American psychiatry, and so the question is, how did I get from Germany mm-hmm. to the United States? Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. um, I i uh you know uh wrote a lot about German psychiatry and especially about psychoanalysis as the years went on and then uh one day I got an email from the editor of the journal uh for the History of the Neurosciences that the work of um that had been translated into English of, of the great German psychiatrist, Emil Kraepelin, and I'll, I can say some more about him later on, um, had been reprinted, and they had a set of five bums, he said, and they were one of the few journals that was given this because it was worth $600, and would I like to review it, and I said, well, sure, he said he didn't want someone in the field, you know, in, in psychiatry, he wanted a historian. I said, sure. And I really got into kreplin and read a lot more about him than I'd ever known before. And I began to write. And the review just turned into an article. And, and luckily, I was fortunate. The editor said, you know, you can you can write some more, you know, because I was worried. You know, I'm running out of space here. And so, so I wrote about kreplin. And evaluated his work and, uh, you know, had, had commented on it. And then after a while, some time passed and, uh, the editor, uh, one of the editors of the journal of, uh, called History of Psychiatry said that there would be a special issue on Kraplin. And would I write about Kraplin's influence in the United States? So I said, okay, sure. And so I, I looked into that uh and that's what got me across the ocean <laughs> from from mm-hmm. Europe to to North America uh because um the DSM3 and DSM stands for the diagnostic and statistical manual and DSM3 means the the third edition of of this manual which is put out by the American Psychiatric Association um so um Craplin uh, had uh, started a, a tradition of what we call descriptive psychiatry, where he paid a lot of attention to what he saw and what he observed. Said, you know, we don't really know what most of the etiologies, the causes, are of mental illness, but we can pay attention to what we um, what, what we see in front of us and we can pay some attention to the course of of any given illness and then try to figure out, you know, where is it going? Um, I don't know whether I should talk more about uh, Kreplin right now, uh, or whether you'd like me to talk more about Kreplin a little later in terms of...
1: Why don't we talk about it now? This is a nice segue, um, because he's actually sort of, you know, predates the... It, you know he's sort of early on in your book and early on in the history of all this. Um, yeah. Do well, you want to just tell us a little more about him? Sure. I I'd be glad to. Um uh,
0: Kraepelin was born in in Germany in 1856. I was saying by the way that's where he was born in Austria. And uh um, it's that's sort of important in the story. Uh so uh Kredlin decides to become a psychiatrist and as it turned out, psychiatry in Germany and even in, in Europe, I think, as a whole, um, by the t- end of the 19th century had really come to a dead end. That is, there were a lot of studies into brain anatomy and physiology, and, and they yielded nothing. And there was kind of an air of pessimism and gloom because they were just putting more and more people into these large asylums, you know, warehousing people and there's nothing they can do for them. And all the avenues of research have petered out and are going nowhere. Um, so in this situation, um, it's, this is a situation where Craiglin said, well, maybe the way out is, is not to try to brain slices, uh, but let's just observe and, and see what we see and describe what we see and try to make some sense. Of Of where we are, and actually, this is where Freud came in as well, that is he responded to that dead end, just the way Clevelandland did, except Freud went an entirely different direction into the direction of developing psychoanalysis and uh saying that uh mental disorders uh are based on unconscious conflict uh for krelin we have none of this. Uh, what Prepping said was, uh, let me see if I can make sense of all these symptoms. And he ended up saying, if, if we study all the psychotic symptoms, uh, and notice their courses, it seems to me we have two big groups. One is that of uh, what he called dementia precox, early, early dementia. Which later on, in somewhat of a changed form, was called schizophrenia, and that is a bad diagnosis. He said that's just going to go downhill. Uh, but there's another group. He said where the psychotic symptoms are all very similar, but if you look carefully, you'll see they they abate, and the person gets better. They may get sick again, but they do get better, and so you can tell the relatives of those people. You know, you're you're you're. A uh, poor family member has what Craplin Kri- called manic depressive illness, or close to what we call bipolar today and yeah your your family member is sick, but you know hang in there, and in a year he'll get better uh so so this is Craplin's um big contribution uh in writing textbooks whereby he grabbed. He figures out that of all the symptoms and all the classifications that people are writing that are going nowhere, and all what he calls brain mythology that's going nowhere um, you know here here is something that we can do to um help our our thinking um and this is what Craplin did was. Descriptive psychiatry, and this is what d s m three ended up being a manual of descriptive psychiatry. um I was wondering if you think we have time, I could read a little bit from krepeling uh just sure. to, see, to give you an example of 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 what a brilliant describer he was, and that would be great, oh okay, um uh you let me know if I'm going to spend too much time, but I just want to give you a sample. Uh, so for, uh, this we say in, in the, um, uh, second chapter on Craplin, I introduce it in this way. To read Craplin's early chapter, Psychic Symptoms, in the section of his textbook on Dementia Praecox, is an intense experience. In a rapid fire, tumbling out on one, on, on one another are descriptions of 53 symptoms in 68 pages. And then, for example, Crichton fixes on something he's called "agitated dementia praecox," uh, and he vividly describes frequent hallucinations. He, he tells us that the patients see mice, ants, the hound of hell, sighs, axes. They hear cocks crowing, cocks crowing, shoot shooting, birds chirping, spirits knocking, bees humming, murmuring, screaming, scolding, voices from the cellar. And then the patients say, he says, all kinds of little things they hear. And the voices speak about what the patient does. And they say, that man must be beheaded. hanged, or swine, wicked wretch, you'll be done for, the voices say. Then he says, delusions are developed with extraordinary frequency. The feeling of the disease takes on insane forms. That the brain is burned, shrunken. As if completely gone to jelly, full of water. The mind is, quote, drawn like rags from the brain, unquote. The tongue is made of iron. These are the feelings, right, that the patient is describing. The lungs are dried up. Blood is in the spinal marrow. The flesh is loosened from the bones. The patient is not a human being any longer than, again, a subjective sensation. These illusions are frequently accompanied by ideas of sin. The patient has. By a sinful life, he thinks, destroyed the health of body and mind. He is the greatest sinner, has convinced unworthily, has denied God. God has forsaken him. He is eternally lost. He is going to hell. And in connection with these ideas of sin, ideas of persecution, says Craplin, are invariably developed. The patient notices that he is looked at in a peculiar way, laughed at, scoffed at, that people are jeering at him. People spy on him. Jews, anarchists, spiritualists persecute him. Poison the atmosphere with poisonous powder. The beer poison the beer with prussic acid. You know, I I could go on. Uh, But
1: uh, very vivid. He could have been a poet if he hadn't been a psychiatrist.
0: He was a brilliant writer, Um, and uh, we don't see these things anymore by and large. Uh, This kind of extreme. Hallucinations and delusions, uh, because we have medicine. Uh, and usually most people, uh, if they get this ill, uh, are getting treatment and treatment for their voices and hallucinations and delusions. Uh, so this, this is psychiatry like, like anyone learning psychiatry today, a medical student, a resident sees nothing of, nothing. Uh, but this is what it was like. Um,
1: so um so I wonder if we could maybe switch now over to American psychiatry okay. and talk a little bit about what was happening in the years between World War II and the start of the DSM-III yeah. process. What was going on and what was the public perception of psychiatry well, like then? What was happening
0: uh after World War II, psychoanalysis became very important in the United States. Uh, Partly because uh, a lot of emigre analysts from Europe running away from the Nazis came here. Uh, And partly because the psychiatrists in in the army in World War II uh, were better, the psychiatrists who were psychoanalysts were better able to help uh, the soldiers who were suffering what used to be called shell shock, you know, or, or combat fatigue. Uh, to, to come back to themselves pretty quickly before the, the illness became entrenched. It was very impressive. Oh my god, people were saying, look, look what these guys can do, these psychoanalysts. are they great? You know, uh, they used a lot of hypnosis in, in uh, partly uh, to do this. And so, uh, people came home from the army vowing to become psychoanalysts. And so psychoanalysis became the vogue and what happened was psychoanalysis promised more than it could ever deliver. Um it was very, very um, you know, dominant and um most the chairs of the department of psychiatry in this country were analysts and uh psychoanalysis was taught to all the medical students and, and residents. Um but uh at the same time, there were, by this time in, in our country, uh, uh, 500,000, a half a million people locked up in state asylums, in, in um, state, state hospitals. And so this, then psychoanalysis offered nothing. And after the war, there was a big expose of the uh, conditions in which these people were living. And there was quite a reaction. Uh that somehow did this was terrible, and it gone all wrong um and clearly, psychoanalysis had not helped the situation um at all um, and and so um as time went on, and we got into the Vietnam War in the sixties. It was this general feeling, you know, of rebellion in this country and rebellion against authorities and a lot of rebellion saying, how can you lock people up, you know, maybe there's nothing wrong with them really, maybe they're just a little odd or a little eccentric, but, you know, how can you do this? And it just got to the point where um, uh, if two physicians uh, decided that a person needed commitment, and it came before a court and, uh, the, the judge, uh, overruled the position and said, no, I know this person seems pretty sane to me. He's talking this way, that way, the other way. So he could overrule the psychiatrist. And so the American Psychiatric Association was very upset by, by all this and by what was called then anti-psychiatry. Uh, and there were a lot of people speaking out against psychiatry at that time, uh, maybe if we revise our scientific manual, our DSM, our, our manual I should say, not scientific, my diagnostic manual, to be more scientific, just sound more scientific. Maybe we can put down all this anti-psychiatry stuff and, and the, the fact that um, psychiatrists you know, have less and less of a say in, in what happens. Um and it was really I can't emphasize how much anti psychiatry uh played a role. Um, because for example, in nineteen sixty nine the American Psychiatric Association, the APA, met in Miami for their annual meeting and there was a plane flying overhead carrying this big banner that says psychiatry killed. Uh so so um this this was the situation and the APA thought, hmm, maybe we can turn this around with with a new manual. Uh, so so that, that's what was in the air leading up to DSM-3.
1: And what about the neo-Crapelinians? Am I saying that right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> they were sort of coming along at about the same time, right. and they were pretty important in the story as yeah. well. well. They were actually in a
0: minority and a much smaller minority. Um and the neo so called neocreptlines, that is, those people who decided to follow in credulence footsteps and ignore psychoanalysis and describe what you see and then try to do research uh in, into the causes of mental dis- disorders. So so uh uh, there were, there were very few, few such people. But one department of psychiatry that was biological and not psychoanalytic was the Department of Psychiatry at Washington University in St. Louis. And the chair of that department was a biological psychiatrist who did research. Um, and, and the, the story is this. Uh, I have to move from I've introduced Washington University, but just let's leave it for a second and then let's go east to Harvard there's a psychiatrist named Mandel cones, And he'd been originally trained as a cardiologist and he thought psychiatry and became a psychiatrist but thought psychiatry should be um, medical. And he was virulently anti-psychoanalytic. So much so that the psychoanalysis the department of who dominated the department of psychiatry wouldn't even allow him an appointment in their department. And so Mandel Cohen ends up in the neurology department. But he does get a chance to train certain interns and, and residents and makes an impact on some of them. Uh, that psychiatry has to be a medical discipline. That psychoanalysis is the wrong way to go. Um uh, And one of one of these people who he trained is a man by the name of Eli Robbins, who turned out to be a quite bright person, and when he was ready to leave Harvard after his residencies both in neurology and, and psychiatry, Mandel contacted him go to Washington University. That's the place for you and so Eli Robbins, uh following his guru, his mentor, went to Washington University. Uh, and as friends with some of the, those contemporaries in the Department of Psychiatry, we started teaching them what Mandel Cohen had taught him about how you make a diagnosis and so-called operational criteria where that you will use to list the symptoms, uh, and these are the kinds of diagnostic criteria where you just list, list, list the symptoms. Um, and so Eli Robbins uh taught this, uh in particular to two guys, um, Daniel Gouzet and George Winokur. So here you have this this Troika, this trio of Robbins Goethe and Winokur. They're about the same age, they have similar backgrounds, they they come from Jewish families where the parents have been immigrants, uh, and they sit around at lunch every day and they shoot the breeze and they brainstorm. What can we do, uh, to turn American psychiatry? What can we possibly do, uh, to, as one said, I think they said, make a dent in American psychiatry? And, uh, indeed, uh, this is what began, began to happen. Uh, that, uh, the, the people at what I call WashU, Washington University, uh, in 1972, published a new classification based solely on description, and they gave us an example, uh, schizophrenia, and how you would describe schizophrenia, and of course, it had nothing to do with psychoanalysis, nothing to do with unconscious conflict, and this paper, as we say today, went viral, people, because there is anti-psychiatry. Excuse me, please. Anti-psychiatry in this country. Psychiatrists uh, are feeling the brudist, and here comes this paper, which seems to say, "Hmm, maybe here is a way out." Uh, and so that's where the neo-Creplinians Neo-Kripplin, were, and they're they're important because they were able to influence the leader of the task force that made DSM three.
1: Around that time is when the task force, you know, they decided they were going to do this. They started the task force. And this is when Robert Spitzer comes along. Um, And can you tell us a little bit about him and who he was and how he ended up in this role?
0: Sure. Um, Robert Spitzer, he's still alive. Um, He's a a psychiatrist and actually trained as a psychoanalyst. And I'll mention the significance or non-significance of that. Uh, He was born in 1932. Uh, in New York, uh, and he established himself pretty quickly, uh, as, as a bright person, as a bright kid. Uh, I, I have records from his, uh, school. He went to a, a progressive school, Walden, in, um, uh, New York City, Manhattan. And, uh, uh, I have his school records and psychologist records and teacher's records and very early in life. Uh, he was clearly going to be a leader, uh, and the students, the other kids in, in school looked, looked up to him. Uh, and by his teenage years, he was very, very, uh, uh, he was studied by a, a famous, um, sociologist, David Reisman, who wanted to see how political attitudes are formed. And so he, he interviewed Spitzer at school, but of course published it with another name and another location. Uh, but when I interviewed Spitzer, I uh, jump ahead to this, uh, when I first started to work on the book, he told me that he had been uh, interviewed by, by, uh, by David Riesman, and that he appeared as Henry Friend in Reisman's book, Faces in the Crowd. So Spitzer hadn't told anyone this, and so I was able to, to go to Reisman's book and get all this information about Spitzer. Okay, so, so just to move on, he, he goes to college as well, goes to medical school, does, does very well, um, and then uh, goes to Columbia, uh, the New York State Psychiatric Institute at Columbia University for his psychiatric training, and uh, then goes into psychoanalytic training because everyone who wanted to be with it in those days, and this is in the um, uh, 50s and 60s, got for analytic training, because that's what you did if you wanted to, you know, be with the majority. Um, so he gets the psychoanalytic training, uh, but it, it's, he, it's clear he uh, doesn't really do very well at it, And as he puts it himself when he, he graduated just barely, that uh, they allowed him to, to get out. Um, so here you have it, this very bright person, He's very creative. He's open to ideas. He's a hard worker. He has enormous dr- energy, enormous drive. Very task oriented, task fixated, and with absolutely no compunction about making trouble. Uh, and he himself said, I, I, "I'm a troublemaker. I like to make trouble," and so he's a contentious person. And and when he gets an idea out, he's prepared to fight over it. And if someone opposes him, he's prepared to fight over it. And a lot of people, you know, would rather not fight. Uh and if there's gonna be a conflict they, they pull back. But not not Spitzer. So so he's in um uh here he is, this this bright, rebellious person, uh and uh he is is the one who is going to end up with making DSM-3, and what happened was this: How he got the job um, in the early 70s, 1970s, uh, Spitzer uh, happened to be the man who took the diagnosis of homosexuality out of the DSM that was DSM-2, and substituted for it sexual orientation disturbance, that is, the person, the the, the gay uh, person who uh, might have been upset at his orientation, not because he had it, but because it bothered him. Then that person might get a diagnosis of sexual orientation disturbance. That is, he was unhappy with being gay. But being gay itself was was no longer a diagnosis. And this, of course, was a, a tremendous thing. Um, so he's already known to the people in the APA because of what he's done to get homosexuality out of the DSM. And, uh, at this point also, he's, he's a graduate psychoanalyst, and he's really finding psychoanalysis not his bag, not his cup of tea at all. Uh, and so it's kind of loose ends, you know, what should he do with himself? Uh, he wants to do research, he knows that, and he's published already some articles, and he's in the biometrics unit at the New York State Psychiatric Institute, which is research-oriented and measurement-oriented. and so he asks for the job. He has to be the new uh, maker of, of the, to do the next revision of, of the DSM. I mean, the ATA already decided that they were going to do this revision to make psychiatry appear more scientific. And so then Spitzer comes and asks for the job. But there's a problem. The man who is the head of the committee that normally would revise the DSM is 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 in place, and the APA wasn't about to throw out this guy who there was nothing wrong with him at all, and then suddenly adventitiously, the man decided to resign from his position as head of the task force to make DSM-3, and so Spitzer gets the job. And, and Spitzer was very fortunate in that he had a kind of a power behind the throne, backing him up, a, a, a psychiatrist named Melvin Stapchin, S-A-B-S-H-I-N, who was the new medical director of the APA. And Saption had come to that job uh, to make psychiatry more scientific, to try to, re- to undo the anti-psychiatry uh, and so he's, he's dedicated to that. And and Spitzer then is his man. He's gonna back him up no matter what problems there are, no matter who Spitzer runs a foul of. Saption's gonna be there every minute, you know, backing him up and, and Saption turned out to be a pretty effective person. Um so so this is uh, how uh uh Robert Spitzer gets to be head of the task force uh for DSM
1: three. Um, so Fitzgerald and the task force have a pretty hard job ahead of them. And yeah. could you just tell us about some of the challenges that they had in creating this whole new classification system?
0: Well, uh, the, the, the biggest issue was that psychiatry was looked down upon uh, by lay people, by medical people, by lots of other psychiatrists. And and what to, what to do about it. Um, and Spitzer had carte launch to appoint whoever he wanted to to this task force Um, because up to this point the DSM's were were nothing they were tiny little pamphlets almost, you know, 130 page spiral bound short little books and so uh, no one cared who was on that committee to do this Um, This is okay And I'm going to appoint who I want And he appointed a lot of people From Washington University Or people who had been uh, Had some training At Washington University Or in some way whose lives had professionally been involved With the university So he gets these people And uh, they are what one of them Calls DOPs Data Oriented uh, uh, people, uh, DOP, DOPS, and they don't like psychoanalysis. And they say, you know, there's nothing scientific about it. We just have no proof of any of this happening. We will want to make a manual based on data. And so the task force is a bunch of pretty anti psychoanalytic people. More so than Spitzer. Spitzer himself, I think, as I as I went through the archives, was willing at points in the development of the uh, new manual to make some compromises with the analyst. The task force literally wouldn't let him. I mean, Spitzer got more than he bargained for in a way. Yes, he had cut blanche to appoint who he wanted, and he appoints people who uh, are interested in uh, describing... And not not in speculating, quote unquote, about unconscious uh, ideas, uh, but they turned out to be even more radical than he himself. Um, so so this is this is the group, and so they're, they 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 are prepared to undo psychoanalysis in this country. That's a pretty tall order because the psychoanalysts are in charge. Most of the departments of psychiatry, as I said, are chaired by psychoanalysts. Uh, And they sit on the boards and they dominate the uh, APA, and and they're very important. Uh, So so that's the biggest
1: thing that they they take on. So Uh, one of the big challenges was getting the whole psychiatry world to go along with this. Yeah,
0: Uh uh-huh. and And they did face a lot of a lot of uh opposition um but but part of why they were able to do it is that the analysts i'll just call them that for short uh sitting in a position of power didn't think they had much to worry about, and so they're very slow in challenging what's going on, and then they come to the fight. By the time the task force has done most of the new classification, they really dragged their heels. Um, there was a big meeting in 1976, the midway point in the making of dsm 3 and uh, the meeting was to educate about the the new manual, get out a draft, Get. they invited 100 people, mostly researchers but also some analysts, come to this meeting to learn and see what Spitzer was doing. By the way, Spitzer was never secretive. He did everything openly because he wasn't afraid of of opposition.
1: He didn't try to hide anything.
0: He was way out there. So the analysts at this meeting, maybe 15%, one-five of the total number of of, uh, people at the meeting, uh, see what, what, what they're going to face. And and this is in in June of nineteen seventy six. And so they decide they're going to form a committee, a psychoanalytic subcommittee to deal with to negotiate with Spitzer. So they stopped this in June, but they don't do anything about it till December. That's how much they sort of drag their heels. And then when the chair of this new psychoanalytic subcommittee calls to speak to Spitzer to set up an appointment where they can meet, he says he wants an appointment three months hence. So that's by this time in March of 1977. Uh, And, uh, you know, the the horse was out of the barn by, by that point, but the... Uh, yeah, they should have acted a little faster than oh, they have, have their, their voice heard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but they didn't think in the beginning they had much to worry about. The uh, sister also turned out to be a very good uh, strategist, a really master tactician at knowing how to outwit them and, and run them at, at every possible uh, turn. It it makes for kind of ouch. If you are a psychoanalyst and you... Uh, because I know this because, you know, people have read the book who, who are analysts like, my God, it, it makes for painful reading to see what happened and, and how we we didn't do a very good job. But it it's true. I mean, it, it's there in the archives. You can just see the analysts failing uh, to so, do what they needed to do. It's mm-hmm. uh, a fascinating mm-hmm. story. Yeah. Um, oh, and I how have did this, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, no, I want to backtrack just one second. Because I, I left something out, and that one of the, the big challenge was to get rid of psychoanalysis, but an equally big challenge was to come out, come up with some system to make the diagnoses that psychiatrists gave, uh, people reliable. Reliability was the big issue, that reliability in American psychiatry was terrible. Two psychiatrists who interviewed this person, might come up with entirely different ideas about what what they saw, uh, and again, they were the object of the uh, psychiatry, the object of scorn everywhere for the fact that there was just a seeming uh, inability uh, to to look at something and and agree. So that was another big challenge that Spitzer wanted to make. Do what he could. To make diagnoses reliable, so at least when psychiatrists talk to each other, they were both talking about the same thing. Um, So uh, that's it. I'm
1: sorry. I'm sorry. I'd have to go back. Well, how did they? Well, no, that's that's perfect because it kind of was along the lines of what I was going to ask. I mean, how do you do that? How did they start? I mean, clearly it's not perfect. They've been revising the DSM. You know, they just DSM five is out this summer. but I mean, where do you where did they start? How do they well, go about trying to get something they, that's at least they, somewhat reliable?
0: They they decided decided to to go with Cripplin to describe mm-hmm. and Spitzer appointed subcommittees of the task force, as specialists in various different fields of psychiatry. Again, this is the first time this had ever been done. DSM two, one and two. Just a few people, you know, sitting around making, writing a few things. Uh, but he appointed 14 subcommittees and they put them to work drafting, uh, new descriptions and also what he called diagnostic criteria. This is where Mandel Cohen comes in, the anti-psychoanalytic psychiatrist from, from Harvard, who said we, we need to have what Cohn called operational criteria We, if we study something we need to describe it. it comes along if he wants to test what we've done and duplicate our study we'll be speaking the same language so that was the job of all these various working committees, these advisory committees to for every diagnosis to make a list of the symptoms and in some way It it was almost like, quote, unquote, the and this is a joke, the the Chinese menu, that they would say, well, a diagnosis for such and such, uh, for this diagnosis to be made, uh, four out of the six things listed in column A must be apparent. And then in column B, uh, one out of the three things listed had to be apparent. And in column C, uh, two out of five of the things had to be apparent. And if all that was apparent and you went down the list, then you, you could give someone the diagnosis. So th- this is the kind of psychiatry that was produced in the new manual, which we still have, by and large, in DSM-5. Uh, mm-hmm. And it has... Come to be a problem in psychiatry. I don't know, you know, when we should talk about that. But well, let's talk about that because the, the DSM,
1: psychiatry. yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh um, And um, uh, so, so we we can skip ahead, or I I can talk some more about um, uh, the,
1: the. Let's get to that. So tell us some of the both the positive achievements of DSM three as well as the problems with it. Um.
0: Okay. Well, it's certainly
1: been controversial in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh,
0: for for one thing, it it does lead to quote unquote checklist psychiatry. Residents are trained to do diagnosis, but they're not trained in most residencies to spend a lot of time with the patient, uh, and so we have this this specter today of fifteen minute med checks. I don't know if you're familiar with the phrase, or your listeners are, but this. Uh, is an unholy collusion of managed care in this country of, of health insurance companies wanting to make profits and a psychiatrist earning more money if they see four patients every fifteen minutes to go over meds and than they would in the same hour seeing one person for for psychotherapy and the insurance companies find it cheaper to fund uh checklist psychiatry, which relies on medicine on medication than it is to fund psychotherapy so they they support checklist psychiatry and and uh um so that that's, that's one of the 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 problems um of of d s m three and and still today a psychiatry in this country but it was begun in an effort to make science a uh, psychiatry. Uh, scientific. Um, uh, another um, uh, and some other unfortunate aspects of the SN3 uh, are that it is it has all these categories. They're very very. I just showed you how you might arrive at a diagnosis, and um, it's like uh, they're constructing little houses, little little boxes in which to fit people in. And lots of times, you know, you see a patient, and that patient doesn't really fit. So how do you end up diagnosing that patient? Uh, and they've given, they would give diagnoses called NOS, not otherwise specified. So let's say they're trying to diagnose someone, and they thought this person has schizophrenia, but what kind of schizophrenia? Does it have schizophrenia, uh, 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 simple schizophrenia, does it have um, catatonic schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia? Um, and sometimes it wasn't even clear, even though you said, the the physician said, oh, yes, this is schizophrenia, what schizophrenia it was. And so they would call it schizophrenia, not otherwise specified, uh, which is, uh, you know, it's a shot in the dark. It says does, does very little. Um uh, you you are, as it were, carving nature at its joints. You know, Plato's that used that phrase in the Phaedrus about carving nature at its joints. But maybe nature doesn't have joints. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's all kind of running one into the other. Nothing is is so so co- completely categorical. So another aspect of DSM three and attempt to fix it in VSM five, though certainly not, not anywhere close, is what's is poor validity. Yes, you get better reliability. So the psychiatrist interviewing the same patient will agree on a diagnosis, but is it a true diagnosis? Have you carved nature at a joint where it really shouldn't be chopped apart? Uh and then so you end up with um uh, patients who who's kind of overlap have more than one fall into more than one, one category, so which category is the prime category? Some of the things that people in d s m five found, for example, is that so many of the diagnoses center around anxiety so since anxiety is this common feature of dozens of diagnoses, what do you do do you use? say anxiety as as an illness, oh but how are you gonna do that if it's everywhere? Or do you say, well, this person has uh, a major affective, a major mood disorder? Uh, um well uh, um oh wait, um uh wait, just just it's just excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Hold hold on, just just a moment. Okay, you'll okay. have to edit this out. I'm sorry. Um, no problem. Okay. Uh, but... Um,
1: uh, do you want me to pause the... Yeah. I can pause you, it. For a minute. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. we're paused. Okay. Yeah, sure. Okay.
0: Validity means getting a diagnosis that is accurate, that is true, that is real. Uh, but if so many diagnoses have the same symptoms, where do you divide? Now, Kreplin came up with a division, right, in psychotic illnesses between... Dementia, precox, schizophrenia, and manic depressive disorder, bipolar. But maybe that wasn't true. Even Creplin, at the end of his life, started thinking, "Hmm, I made this division. Is is it an accurate division? Maybe I I made a mistake." So this is this is a real problem. So many illnesses share the same symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, DSM 3 Right. Yes, it's very complicated. You these very sharp lines between illness and, and normality. And maybe they mm-hmm. just don't exist. The psychoanalysts had a spectrum, a dimensional approach. That is, you have every shade ranging from normal to very normal to very, very abnormal. And where along the line do you fit? And maybe that's a more accurate way of, of looking at, at uh, illness and, and diagnosis. Um uh, another problem that came out of DSM-3 it, are all the new categories that Spitzer decided to put in the new manual. Because what Spitzer said was, let's make this new manual, DSM-3, an inclusive manual, something that all clinicians can use. Well, all clinicians have lots of different diagnoses. And if you put them all in, you end up with dozens of new diagnoses that never will As I said, the old DSMs, 1 and 2, were 134-page booklets. DSM 3 is 494 pages and a hard-bound, big volume. So what happened in the beginning, no one thought of this, was that drug companies kind of rubbed their hands and said, hmm, new diagnoses, maybe we can find pills for them. And, and this is where that whole notion that we now hear today about Big Pharma came. Um, uh, big Pharma in psychiatry starts here with DSM-3 and the new diagnoses. So this this is yet another unfortunate aspect of uh, DSM-3. Uh, on the other hand, there are positive ones. We definitely should should mention then that you have the specificity of, of diagnostic criteria leading that relieves reliability. Uh, you, you have a, a, what's called a multi axial system of five different axes of diagnosis, which, which sort of gets around the checklist by forcing you to look at the patient as, as a whole person. Now, that's good in DSN 3. Uh, also, it was found that in this country, the diagnosis of schizophrenia was vastly overused, applied to people who never had anything close to schizophrenia. So that's something else that to try to do. And he cut back on the schizophrenia diagnoses, which, which turned out to be a, a very good idea. Uh, and introduced some really good diagnoses, such as PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, this is the first time something like that is in the manual. And it's become one of the most vital diagnoses, uh, be, not only for people who are from Iraq, uh, veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan who may suffer, but for all kinds of uh experiences people have that that leave them uh traumatized so this is an example of something very good uh that that
1: uh spitzer uh began and sort of our- our society started to recognize that as a legitimate thing that happens to some people
0: yeah um and, once and, it became. And now that we we see it, we find it. In, in more and more places. Yeah.
1: Uh, so in general, how how was the how have the DSM well all of them, three, four, five, um, how have they been important in our society? Um they've
0: become vastly important. Um, because um, the various groups and societies and organizations are using the DSM to make judgments. So for example, not only is it used by psychologists and by psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers and counselors to 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 make a diagnosis they can get paid by various insurance companies who insist that you must have a DSM diagnosis before they will reimburse you. It's used by school teachers It's used by school counselors, all kinds of school administrators to make decisions. So for example, uh, if you have a developmentally uh, uh, disabled child, um, if you get the right kind of diagnosis, a DSM diagnosis, your child can get free school services for special needs. But if you don't have the diagnosis, you can't get those services. Um, Employers use it. because since uh, the Americans for Disabilities Act nineteen ninety uh the employers have to make accommodations for, for kinds of of problems uh including uh psychiatric problems and so just to show how how significant that is um in this last round of revision that produced d s m five there were a lot of new ways of looking at things and new Things that were brought in, and all of a sudden, all the labor lawyers and, and uh, 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 labor officials are saying, "Hmm," and beginning to publish all kinds of ways that employee employers now have to accommodate their their um, their their employees. It's using prisons. It's used just get eligibility for public housing. If you have the right kind of a DSM diagnosis, you're eligible for public housing. Uh, So I could go on, but you're beginning, I'm sure you can see by this, how millions of everyday states are affected uh, by the DSM, and DSM-5 is is not going to change that. If anything, it's going to implement it all the more.
1: Well, it's really... I mean it is amazing how pervasive it is and how much it does really impact people's daily lives both you know and sometimes in in positive ways and sometimes not um yeah. but it's it's really quite interesting to me to read this book at a time when the new DSM5 is coming out with all kinds of controversy so um you know I'm wondering just as sort of a closing question if you could maybe I don't know just do you have any, as, as a scholar in this field, do you have any light you could shed on DSM-5 coming out? Well, this um,
0: there was an attempt to get away from these sharp, defined categories where it was so hard to fit a person in and, and turn to more ways of looking at things uh, with the uh, spectrum. And in some cases, the, the DSM-5 people... Succeeded. They came up with a, an autism spectrum disorder that would range along a continuum, but not without great controversy because the people who had been called, quote-unquote, Asperger's, right, now lost that diagnosis, a diagnosis which they felt, which they in a way treasured because they felt it was not a diagnosis of autism. But the DSM-5 people said no, you know, we really have to look at it in the entire spectrum of starting from barely disabled to, start to very disabled. And so that was controversial, but in a way, it was an effort to be more realistic and more valid. Uh, also, there's a schizophrenic spectrum disorder uh, that has been developed, and again, that will uh, try to address the issue of severity as opposed to just diagnoses of of a certain kind of thing. On the other hand, they failed to get um, a a spectrum concept uh, accepted for the personality disorders, like narcissistic personality, histrionic personality, obsessive personality. Uh, This was tried, and it, it got so complicated to try to... Figure out how, how, what, and what, and the personality disorders, the, you know, a lot of the symptoms are quite common to all the various kinds of personality disorders. And it was tested in field trials, and people said, this is just too complicated. We can't do it. It will take too much time. Uh, mm-hmm. it would be a good thing, actually, I, in my opinion, if, to have something like that occur. But then the clinician has to be willing to really get to know the patient and take time and uh, that leads us back into the whole question of uh, yes. reimbursement um, right. I, I think the DSM-5 you know was accused by many critics of medicalizing normality uh, by introducing new diagnoses uh, but th- this really raises an enormously important question in psychiatry of what is normal human variation how do you decide what is merely eccentric to what is abnormal and should be considered a disorder? Uh, and, and this is something that uh, psychiatry is going to have to struggle with uh, henceforth. Um, I can say something else, though, that, that we see happening as a result of DSM-5, that the DSMs are becoming ever more biological. They're they're trying to reduce everything to uh, brain activity. Um, And ever since psychiatry became what I would call modern, and uh, since around the time of the Enlightenment, 200 years ago or more, when um, it was decided that mental disorders are not punishments for sin, you know, or shouldn't be dealt with by religious authorities but can be dealt with by medical authorities. Um, there's been this violent swing back and forth in psychiatry between a biological, sort of physical approach to things and a more psychological or psychic approach to things, that I call material versus non-material. And Psychiatry keeps going back and forth, back and forth. Just think that by now people would realize that disorders are a combination of biological and psychological factors, of genetics, of environment, uh and uh, this has been one of the problems I think that has recar- retarded psychiatry. Yes, psychiatry makes progress, but they keep fighting among themselves. And and, and when, mm-hmm. for example, in DSM-3, when the new uh, task force right came came to that, they threw out everything in psychoanalysis. Well, clearly, psychoanalysis has great problems, but some of it is certainly valid. And so there's Mm -hmm. this this name-calling and deriding and and, uh, saying, oh, we have to go this path only, and this is going to be the silver bullet, the magic bullet uh, that will uh, show us everything that we need to know. And so I'm Mm -hmm. I'm troubled by what seems to be a lack of sophistication among very sophisticated people uh, Mm -hmm. as to the fact that human beings are very complicated, I think psychiatry is the most difficult discipline there is. Maybe harder to do than rocket science uh, because you're dealing with a human being in which one minute of a human being's life is not exactly like the next minute in the human being's life as things are floating in and out and changing constantly. Uh, And so I see psychiatry as a very difficult discipline.
1: I've said that to, before too, to people who are critical of psychology and research. I mean, absolutely, it's it's not perfect, but you know, they're very difficult to study this, and it's incredibly complicated. Yeah, so, it's a human Do the being. best we can. It's very
0: complicated.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much. Um, could you tell us what are you working on next? What do you have ahead?
0: Well, I'm I'm trying to show how it is that this notion of of operational criteria got from physics to psychiatry because that's how it started. In oh. 1927, a physicist at Harvard, uh, Percy Williams Bridgman, uh, wrote a little book in which he said uh, the way we should define everything in physics is through operational analysis. That is, we have to define um, any any definition of any Aspect should be according to the operations that make it possible to know about that. And that he called that operational analysis. And that was picked up, became very popular in psychology and sociology, um, uh, and philosophy even in the 30s and 40s and, and 50s. Uh, and Mandel Cohn was at Harvard when, uh, Williams and other Harvard, uh, psychologists we're, we're developing uh, this, this notion of, of making a discipline more scientific by operational analysis. Um, and, and he, I, I am trying to show, got this idea from, from physics and uh, turned it into operation criteria, which in turn turned into diagnostic criteria, which are still being used today in DSM5. Uh, so there's this is interesting dissemination wow. of ideas of going from physics to psychology to sociology to philosophy to psychiatry. Uh, so I've been writing a paper on that. And I'm also uh, planning a, a new course. As a result of uh, writing this book on the making of DSM-3, I have decided to teach a new course on the history of madness in the West in the past 200 years, hmm. uh, in which I wow. have to show some of these, these big themes.
1: Well, that sounds really fascinating. This very interesting, I think, to hear a historical perspective on, on this, on the field. And um, I look forward to reading your future work as well. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank You're you. welcome, and thank you again. This is Debbie Sorensen. You've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Hannah Decker, author of the book, The Making of DSM 3 Diagnostic Manuals, Conquest of American Psychiatry. Thank you for listening to New Books in Psychology.